when Muhammad Ali was training to fight Zora Foley at Madison Square Garden. I got permission to bring this tape recorder down and set up to interview Ali after one of his sparring sessions. So I remember I took the tape recorder down. I interviewed Muhammad Ali for 10 minutes. Also, Angelo Dundee, Jimmy Ellis, uh, who was Ali's sparring partner, and Zora Foley. I still have the tapes, and it was quite memorable. And of course, there's great irony in the fact that years later, I became Ali's official biographer. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. This week, we talked to my friend Thomas Hauser, probably most known for his wonderful biography on Muhammad Ali, The Life and Times. We delve into a hell of a lot of Ali. And we look at contemporary boxing and what it's been like to cover it as sort of the elder statesman of boxing writers. Hauser's a fascinating guy, Columbia-educated lawyer, and has a million stories. (laughs) And... uh, just one of the most amusing, interesting, insightful characters in the sport. So I think this will be a fun one. Uh, Thomas Hauser. Uh, it's been fun to go through your career again. And uh, I'm excited to share it with anybody who isn't aware of, of how you came to boxing. So I just thought... Um, very interesting to me that you only began writing at 32 was your first book in 1978. Right. I started writing at age 31, although I'd always enjoyed writing before that to, to give you the background. Sure. Uh, I was working as a lawyer on wall street with a law firm called Cravath, Swain and Moore. And I got bored. I was surrounded by very bright people. The work was challenging at times. Uh, It paid well. But I just got bored, started looking at other legal jobs like the ACLU, U.S. Attorney's Office, other firms, realized I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. And I said, "Okay, what do you want to do now that you're grown up? And I'd always liked writing. I'd like writing term papers and school briefs when I was a lawyer. And I said to myself, why don't I take a year off from the law, write a book, see if I'm any good at it, if I can support myself doing it. And I had some wonderful beginner's luck. The first book I wrote was originally titled The Execution of Charles Horman. It was made into the feature film starring Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek. It won the uh, grand prize at the Cannes Film Festival, won an Academy Award. And uh, I had this foolish idea, oh, this is easy. You just write a good book. Somebody turns it into a movie. You make lots of money. Little did I know. But I was hooked. I kept writing. I loved it. Then in 1983, I wanted to write a book about sports. Uh, I had left the law in 1977. Uh, April 15th, 1977 at 6.05 p.m. was when I walked out of the office. And <laughs> give or take 10 seconds. And I wanted to write a sports book. I'd always been a sports fan, but you can't go into Yankee Stadium and talk to the Yankees. 
You can't go into Madison Square Garden and talk to the Knicks, but you can go into any gym in any city in the world and talk to the fighters who were training there. So I wrote a book about the sport and business of boxing called The Black Lights, which was well-received. And then I went on to other things, uh, wrote a murder mystery, wrote a book about Chernobyl. In 1988, I was approached by Muhammad Ali and his wife, Lonnie, who asked if I was interested in authoring what we hoped would become the definitive, <coughs> excuse me, the definitive Ali biography, which I did. And then I basically put boxing aside, wrote occasional articles, but was writing in many other areas until 2000, when the internet was starting to become a significant force. And a man named Robert Waterman, a Brit, who owned a website called secondsout.com, which at the time was an important website, offered me a wonderful job. He paid me well. He said I could write about anything I wanted. If I wanted to go to a fight, he'd send me there. So that's when I started writing about the contemporary boxing scene on a regular basis. I've been doing it for 20 years now, and I love it. It's it's. Funny in a way, because when I finished writing The Black Lights in 1985, I said to myself, well, I'm an expert on boxing now. No, I wasn't. When I finished writing The Black Lights, I was an informed fan. There mm-hmm. are so many layers to this sport and this business. Uh, over the years, I've been fortunate to get to know them a little better. Well, let me start out with, while you were at Columbia, you had an opportunity to interview Cassius Clay at that time. Can you talk about that? He was Cassius, Cassius no, Clay he at that time, wasn't he? He was when, out by then, I'm sorry. When, when I was a student at Columbia, I graduated from Columbia in 1967. And one of the things I did while I was there was I worked for the student radio station. I did some play-by-play for Columbia basketball games. And at one point, I had a weekly radio show, an interview show called Personalities in Sports. I would take this bulky, old, reel-to-reel tape recorder, which was what people used in those days. And once a week, I'd go down and interview somebody. And, And sports was much more open then. I was allowed, actually, to take this tape recorder and set up in the Yankee dugout two hours before a Yankee game. I took it into the New York Jets locker room before practice and interviewed Joe Namath, Weeb Eubank, Matt Snell, and Wahoo McDaniel. You know, with the Knicks, I interviewed, I remember, Walt Bellamy. Uh, I guess uh, Tom Gola was with the Knicks then, Art Heyman, uh, Barry Kramer. Uh, It was quite heady for a kid, which basically I was back then. And in 1967, when Muhammad Ali was training to fight Zora Foley at Madison Square Garden, I got permission to bring this tape recorder down and set up to interview Ali after one of his sparring sessions. So I remember I took the tape recorder down. I interviewed Muhammad Ali for 10 minutes. Also... Angelo Dundee, Jimmy Ellis, uh, who was Ali's sparring partner, and Zora Foley. I still have the tapes, and it was quite memorable. And, of course, there's great irony in the fact that years later I became Ali's official biographer. 
And at one point, uh, when we were working together on the big biography, I played that tape for him, which was you know more than two decades old. And he looked at me, and he, you know, he played one of those games he plays very often with people. He looked at me, and he said, I remember you. You were wearing a blue shirt. <laughs> I said to him, and you were wearing a white terry cloth, cloth robe. Hmm. And... Uh, he thought for a minute, he said, was I really wearing a white terry cloth robe? I said, yes. Was I really wearing a blue shirt? And he just laughed and said, you're crazy, man. <laughs> <laughs> what, what kind of role did Ali occupy at that time? 1967, he's at the peak of his physical, I mean, just this mythic figure almost. I mean, just paint a picture of what it was like to gain access to what, I mean, him and Babe Ruth seem to be the two dominant athletes of the 20th century, and you're catching him at his absolute zenith of athletic powers. What was that like? I, I was excited to meet Ali. First, there was a charisma about him that was just extraordinary. He maintained that until he was quite old. But back then, we're talking about a time when he was 25 years old, and he just was extraordinarily gifted physically. He was extraordinarily charismatic and handsome. Uh, he was smart. He was funny. He was witty. Dick Gregory said once, if you were going to take one person as an example of what the human species could be physically, you would have taken Muhammad Ali in his prime. So there was a real excitement to meeting him. And he was an incredibly polarizing figure back then. First, he had joined the Nation of Islam, which Arthur Ashe referred to as uh, sort of a black apartheid group. Uh, and uh, he turned a lot of people off there because he was speaking out against the integrationist view of Martin Luther King Jr. and, and other people at the vanguard of the civil rights movement. And also he had refused induction into the army at the height of the war in Vietnam. When I spoke to him, he had not yet been tried. Uh, in fact, he hadn't even, now that I think about it, he hadn't refused induction. He had been called for induction. And in about one month, he would then refuse induction into the United States Army, but he had spoken out against the war. And so a lot of people, a lot of liberals like myself, who initially had been dismayed by his adherence to Nation of Islam teachings, were starting to become attracted to him because of his speaking out against the war in Vietnam. So that's the point at which I saw him. And then a month later, two months later, whenever it was, probably two months later, uh, he refused induction and took things to a whole new level. But it was a very, very exciting moment. Other than John Kennedy, who was my boyhood hero, I don't think you could have sat me down next to anybody who would have excited me as much. Although Sophia Loren might have come close. <laughs> Yeah, I'd have to agree with you there. Well, and this is a time period also, we've talked about it before, but coming in such quick succession, you have Kennedy's assassination, the Beatles' arrival, and, and Cassius Clay and Sonny Liston. Um, 
I mean, it's it's odd because now, I mean, we're we're talking with the backdrop of this virus, which is going to have a, a purchase on changing the world as we've known it, unlike anything that's been seen in, in generations. Um, but what was it like to be alive at that time with a figure as polarizing as Ali was, and and just the whiplash of change where he's become now when we look back at him it's this secular saint with the most beloved face of the 20th century i i met ali in 1967. Uh, john kennedy was assassinated on november 22nd 1963. yeah then in january the beatles came over to the united states and appeared on the ed sullivan show and in February, Cassius Clay, as he was known then, upset Sonny Liston to claim the heavyweight championship of the world. Those three months, I don't care what the calendar says, to my way of thinking, those three months were when the 1960s began. And mm -hmm. then after that, of course, you had the Beatles, you had uh, the whole civil rights movement escalating to a new level, you had the rise of the drug culture. You had riots in American cities. It was, it was a very tumultuous time, but it was also a time of hope. Uh, some people draw analogies between the unsettling nature of those times and now, but the difference was in the 1960s, the people who were pushing for change were pushing to expand equality, to build a great society, which was really a, a, a kinder, more equitable, gentler America, to expand you know, access to good health care, to education, to so many things this country needed. They were building an environmental movement. And now you have a lot of uncertainty and a lot of turmoil, but basically people are pushing back in the opposite direction. We understand what Donald Trump and his cronies are doing. They are destroying decades of progress in environmental areas, in economic equality. So to me, this is a very scary time, whereas the 1960s were a hopeful time. A lot of bad things happened in the 60s. First, there were some major assassinations. Uh, John Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Robert Kennedy were all assassinated. That was very, very painful for America. Malcolm X was assassinated. At that time, he was not nearly as venerated a figure as he would become later on because people outside of a small group didn't really understand how he had expanded his horizons and moved away from the separate, separatist teachings of Elijah Muhammad uh, towards a more you know, embracing idea of, of what Islam could be. Uh, it, just, it was a very different time. You know, the Beatles were about happiness and joy and fun and life. You know, that was another personification of that era. Not a lot of happiness and joy now and there wasn't even before the COVID virus. This to me is a very ugly, scary time. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and with Malcolm X in particular, I mean, I live two and a half blocks from where he was assassinated. I, I wonder, 
how much of a role did Malcolm X play for, for good or ill that profound relationship that he had with Cassius Clay and, and his evolution into becoming somebody so powerful in American society? How, how much do you think that what was the importance of that relationship to the evolution of Muhammad Ali? Malcolm played a huge role in the evolution of Muhammad Ali. There were other teachers that Ali had, like Ismail Sabakan and Jeremiah Chavez, but Malcolm was his most important teacher. It was like a big brother, little brother relationship. A lot of Ali's confidence, a lot of his beliefs were inculcated by him in him by Malcolm. Now, when Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad split, Ali sided with Elijah Muhammad. At that time, he believed that Elijah was the messenger. Malcolm, of course, was assassinated, and, and that scared Ali because he understood then very clearly what could happen if you bucked Elijah Muhammad. Ali later said to me that one of the regrets that he had in life was that uh, he abandoned Malcolm so completely after the split because uh, what Malcolm had come to believe uh, was the path that the Nation of Islam followed after Elijah died. There were a few holdovers from the old regime like Louis Farrakhan who adhered to the old teachings but Wallace Muhammad, who succeeded his father, said, my father was a great man, but he wasn't teaching Orthodox Islam. And in real Islam, hearts and minds and souls have no color. Hmm. Um, I'd like to get to the black lights, but just to stay with Ali, uh, for anybody who hasn't read it, uh, one of the things I love about Muhammad Ali, his life and times, is the incredible array of people that you brought in to inform that biography. So I, I want to understand just the process of embarking on a book like that, how you conceived it, how many people you interviewed, surprising things that you came across, um, just, just that whole process for you, Tom. Well, when I was asked to write the book <clears throat> and agreed to do it, the first question was what form should it take? Ali and Muhammad initially thought that it should be done as another Ali autobiography. And I said, that's not going to work. Number one, Ali already did an autobiography in 1976, which he never read, which was filled with inaccuracies and allegorical stories. And nobody believes Muhammad's going to sit down and write a book anyway. And I wanted to write it as an oral history. In that respect, I was influenced by a wonderful book that a man named Taylor Branch had written about the civil rights movement, uh, I'm going to guess probably in 1974 or thereabouts. Uh, Taylor Branch went out and interviewed uh, well over 100 people who'd been involved in the civil rights movement and cobbled those interviews together into a marvelous book. Uh, the title, actually, My Soul is Rested, comes from a discussion that Martin Luther King had with an elderly African-American movement. Uh, there was a march. She was marching along with the others, but clearly she was starting to struggle. And uh, Martin Luther King went to her and said, you know, you're a very courageous woman, but you look very tired. Why don't you go back and just 
ride and the, the you know, bus that's following the departures. And she looked at him and said, Dr. King, my feet's tired, but my soul is rested. Hmm. And uh, anyway, that book was uh, important to me in deciding to write Muhammad Ali's Life and Times as an oral history. I felt that was the best way to do it because then I could give all the people who were involved in Ali's life and all the people I wanted to commentate on him their say. Now, obviously, I influenced what was in the book in terms of who I interviewed and what I chose to take from those interviews to put in the book. But there were about 200 people I interviewed, and those included as many of Ali's opponents as I could find, uh, relatives, people were, who were in his camp, uh, promoters, uh, you know, presidents, social commentators, other great athletes. There were a few people who would not give me interviews. So Don King would not give me an interview. And uh, Veronica, uh, Ali's third wife, would not give me an interview. Uh, but you know, other than that, I really had a chance to talk with and observe most of the people I wanted to speak with. Uh, one of the sad things for me was that Bundini had died, so he wasn't available. And Sonny Liston, of course, had died uh, about uh, what uh, you know, 18 years earlier or thereabouts. But most of the people I wanted to talk with were still alive, you know, Ali's parents, so many others. And I guess about a year ago, I looked at the list of the people I'd interviewed. And it was very sober, more than half of them have died since I talked with them, but I was able to take what they had to say about Ali's times and Ali himself and put it on the public record. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased with that book. I've written extensively about Ali since then, and what I've written about Ali since Muhammad Ali's life and times has been gathered together in a book entitled Muhammad Ali, A Tribute to the Greatest, which was published after Muhammad died. I don't think I'll ever have a professional project that brings me as much joy as researching and writing Muhammad Ali as Life and Times did. And part of that was all the time I got to spend with Ali. I had a room at his house in Berrien Springs, and I'd go out there for a week at a time to work on the book with him. <clears throat> well, and... And with Ali, there's a there's a documentary that's that's being aired on ESPN now. They rushed it because of their lack of programming about Michael Jordan and the 1997 season, I believe, of the Chicago Bulls. And I was just struck. I was thinking about you and and conversations we've had about Ali, where Jordan for I mean, when I was a kid, I think he became a professional when I was five years old. So he kind of occupied this mythic role of my big brother saying, we're watching the greatest guy to ever do this. And we've got him so young. And I remember a few people that were like that who sort of entered my world. Michael Jackson, where he was being talked about as the greatest entertainer maybe ever. Um, when they leave, I'm just aware of how limited the scope feels of their importance to to the world relative to somebody like Ali where his message just seems to transcend sports he becomes this icon where he doesn't look weird meeting a Nelson Mandela 
at all. And when I think of Michael Jordan, all I really think of is that he he became a billionaire, that he was an extraordinary athlete, but the spirit of, of a lot of these people, or LeBron James or Tiger Woods, um, wh- what is it about Ali and some of the earlier great sportsmen that is able to transcend this barrier to mean so much more and saturate their time with their presence in a way that doesn't seem possible in 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 the contemporary sense, or maybe I'm off in that, but that's just my feeling. I, I remember uh, at the end of the last century, uh, there was all sorts of talk about who should the athlete of the century be. And people said, well, there are really three candidates, uh, Babe Ruth, Muhammad Ali, and Michael Jordan. And I remember thinking and writing at the time, no, Michael doesn't belong on that list. Michael was a great athlete. Uh, Michael was an extraordinary commercial sensation. In that sense, Michael was akin to Arnold Palmer, Mm -hmm. who was a great golfer who redrew the economics of sports completely. You know, before Arnold, if a golfer did a shoe commercially got $500 and a dozen pairs of shoes for 30 consecutive years from 1960 through 1990, long after his playing days were over. Arnold Palmer was the top grossing athlete in the world in terms of endorsement income. You have Tiger Woods. Now you have LeBron James. These are great, great athletes and important figures. But Muhammad Ali and Babe Ruth stood apart from their others because not only were they clearly dominant and the best of their time, I think most people you know, who really follow this stuff say Babe Ruth was the greatest baseball player of all time. For starters, he was a great, great pitcher. He would have been in the Hall of Fame as a pitcher if he pitched his whole career. And uh, then, you know, probably with the possible exception of Ted Williams, the greatest hitter of all time. And he took his sport somewhere. He took his sport somewhere. He really did. Ali was the same way. And Ali had extraordinary social significance as well, as did Joe Lewis, as did Jack Johnson. So Ali, you know, he wasn't just a ball player. He wasn't just a commercial attraction. In fact, Ali really didn't do particularly well as a commercial attraction. Ali was never successful in selling products. People would pay large amounts of money to be in Ali's presence. They would pay large amounts of money for memorabilia, you know, trunks he wore, gloves he wore, autographed pictures. But Ali was never a successful pitch man for products. Now, part of that was in the 1960s. There was a bias against African-American pitchmen. But even years later, when they brought him back and they tried to do a McDonald's commercial, commercial and an Apple commercial, you know, and a Nike commercial, you know, Ali was never about selling products. Ali was never about material things. Ali was about greatness on the playing field and the extraordinary nature of his spirit. And I keep coming back to the fact that I've said this again and again, and I'll say it one more time. Every time Muhammad 
looked in the mirror and said, I'm so pretty. What he was really saying before it was fashionable, was black is beautiful. He stood as a beacon of hope for oppressed people all over the world. When he refused induction into the United States Army during the height of the war in Vietnam, he stood up for the principle that unless you have a very good reason for killing people, war is wrong. And it might be that his greatest contribution, and I certainly felt this after the Atlanta Olympics, his greatest contribution might have been that he was the embodiment of love. Even the people who didn't like Ali liked Ali. When you came face to face with Ali and that incredible smile and that aura of goodwill about him, you, 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 you almost had to fall in love with the man. He was really just such a nice man. He really, he reached a point in his life where he wanted to embrace all people, all colors, all religions, all creeds, you know, he became an exemplar of tolerance, you know, not hatred. And, and, you know, we need a lot more tolerance and love in the world now than than we have. And didn't you tell me, this may be apocryphal, but that there was a sniper that had him in their scope, but when they saw that face? I, I have never said that. No, there are, I mean, what people have said, many times was that it was extremely Ali was at his peak of his prowess and at his most hated in the 1960s, which was a decade of assassinations. And people have speculated that there were times when a sniper might have had him in his sights and just couldn't pull the trigger. But I have no basis for believing that that's actually true. Well, and it does, it's, it's and just... Ali, of course, just to add to that, Ali said, you know, uh, if, if they want to come and get me, come and get me, uh, because Allah is controlling the bullet. And mm. I don't know the extent to which Allah controls those bullets, but no, it's, it's, it's a blessing that Ali lived through those times uh, unscathed. One of the things I... I think that's interesting about Ali also is for all of the credit that he gets for those moral stands, um, he also is so resolutely human in some of the contradictions of his character because clearly, I mean, he he seeks a religious grounds for avoiding the draft, but does not seem so rigorous in, in following the teachings of Elijah Muhammad and Islam in terms of, he was serially unfaithful. I mean, that's fair to say, right? Well, okay, let's, let's, let's look at the whole picture of Ali. Ali was not a saint. Uh, yeah. He was a serial monogamist with regard to his second and third wives. Uh, he had relationships with uh, younger women that uh, were not appropriate. Uh, The cruelties that he visited upon Joe Frazier were uncalled for, and he didn't manage his money in a responsible way. So, you know, know, those are all negatives. Uh, None of us are perfect. Uh, You know, I'm certainly not. uh, Ali wasn't. But he was a good man. Now, in terms of his religion, there was a time when he fit his religion to what he wanted to do. And he had a lot of enablers in that regard. So Islam teaches respect for women. 
but Al, he had all had all these pimps and enablers around him who would say to him, well, champ, the Quran says that in time of war, a man can take more than one wife and you're a fighter. So you're, you're constantly at war so you can have more than one wife. You can have more than one woman. You can be unfaithful. And Ali, wanting the action, would say, well, yeah, okay, that sounds right to me. That sounds religious to me. Uh, yeah, he was flawed. He admits it. Uh, and uh, one of the things that impressed me during the years that I was with him was how deeply spiritual and religious he had become. At the end of each day, and I would say the last, uh, you know, 30 years of his life, Ali would ask himself if God were to judge me based just on what I did today, would I go to heaven or hell? He really lived his life with that belief. Now, we have a lot of people in public life today, particularly in politics, who uh, have expressed lavish devotion to uh, to God and their religion, but don't tell me these people are truly religious. I mean, a lot of these people are just hustlers. Uh, you know, all these people who do things in the name of religion and line their pockets and use it as an excuse to countenance bigotry. You know, you, you can take the Bible and use it to support slavery. That was done for a century in this country. I think it's uh, Leviticus uh, 25, 44, if I'm not mistaken talks about how you shall take uh, your bondsmen and bondsmaids from the heathen that you find around you. Uh, that was the excuse for slavery in this country. Well, you know, the Bible says it's okay. The Bible supports it, you know. And you have people reading the Bible like a lawyer looking for, uh, you know, little nits and picks in a contract that they can wiggle around through. Yeah, I get, I, and I'm not trying to besmirch his legacy. I, I'm just saying, I think part of what people connect to is that there is somebody human. He isn't a saint. And I, I find it interesting. I mean, we're just coming off of the response to Kobe Bryant's death, which really took me aback. I found it very unexpected. It felt kind of similar to Ali's in 2016, which I did not expect given Kobe does not seem, despite being an extraordinary basketball player, um, a very, you know, the sordid history with with the, the rape situation going back some years ago, or kind of what O.J. Simpson and that whole trial of the century wrought on the culture. It's just interesting what these guys, like the legacy that they leave behind, um, Ali just, it seems one that's so resolutely benevolent, like even where there were flaws, we sort of, uh, he makes us feel good in a lot of ways. There's something really profoundly reassuring about just that his presence existed almost in a way, whereas I couldn't understand the Kobe Bryant thing beyond that the period in which people um, were there to witness him that they, they were sort of mourning their youth as much as they were mourning his loss, it felt like. But it yeah. seemed a little misguided to me. Maybe I'm being unfair. Look, Kobe Bryant was a great, great basketball player. And as I understand it, uh, he did a lot of work in trying to improve himself as a person as, as the years went by and, and 
from what I read, was a devoted father. But Muhammad Ali, you said it, was never accused of raping anybody. And uh, Muhammad Ali was, was just an extraordinarily giving person. Uh, but we're in a time now where fame and celebrity status take precedence sometimes over good deeds. You know, uh, if Michael Jackson had been killed in a plane crash, you uh, would have had an outpouring of support, you know, and love, you know, that, uh, that probably exceeded the outpouring for Kobe. And we now definitively know a lot of things about Michael Jackson that aren't so nice. We're, yeah. we're very taken by celebrity status, which is fine, but we build you know, fame out of proportion. You know, look at who we elected president of the United States. Right. And, and I, I want to transition because I think it's, it's fascinating to me with The Black Lights, which is, which is my favorite boxing book ever written, because I just think it's so comprehensive in illuminating the milieu, not just of that time, but the history leading up to it. But it also is prophetic in sort of laying the groundwork for the next major heavyweight champion, which was a very brief stint with Mike Tyson, because it seemed that that's where boxing reawakened in the culture to transcend all other sports. And since he's left, boxing really hasn't been the same, at least in the United States. So I wonder, like, you're somebody who, like, I mean... I wanted to cover this also, that you saw Ali in 1971 fight Joe Frazier. Um, I unfortunately, along with you, had to see my generation's equivalent with Mayweather Pacquiao, which seemed emblematic of all this awfulness that we're talking about that permeates the culture. But what was it like to see Tyson take the stage where for a brief moment in time, um, not that he eclipsed the fame of, of Ali, but more media, more, I mean, it was a more of a spotlight, it felt like in some ways than maybe what Ali had, just because the the apparatus of the media was different. It had it, grown and swollen. It, it has been said, and there's a lot of truth to it, that the, the great heavyweight champions, the important heavyweight champions, uh, the ones who impact on the culture, reflect their time. Uh, Jack Dempsey reflected the uh, excitement uh, and the change and the explosion of the Roaring Twenties. Joe Lewis reflected the uh, quiet move towards integration, the nation coming to accept the fact that uh, you know, there was a black man who everybody could look at and call the American on the night that Joe Lewis fought Max Schmeling that we had to come together to fight and defeat Nazi Germany. Rocky Marciano embodied the uh, optimism, you know, the quiet return to normalcy, but, you know, the, the buoyant optimism of the 1950s. Then you had Ali, who was the perfect embodiment of the crazy, you know, tumultuous 1960s. Mike Tyson reflected the crude, vulgar excess of the 1980s and 1990s. And now to me, Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder, and Anthony Joshua are perfect representatives for the hype of the present time. 
you know, you have these three guys. I'd love to see them fight each other and establish who's the best in the world, but they're not. And it's so much now about the hype and the glitz rather than the competition. The difference between Ali and those people is that Ali really helped shape the times that he was in. And to a degree, Joe Lewis did too, but not to the extent that Ali did. Ali really contributed to creating the 1960s and making that decade what it was. He wasn't just on the sports pages. He was on the front page of every newspaper in the country again and again and again. Well, and, and with, with Tyson, obviously, you know, when he's fighting Michael Spinks, you have two undefeated champions. There's parallels there with, with Ali and Frazier in, in at least just their records being two undefeated champions competing. Um, but the idea of him at that time earning $21 million for 90 seconds, uh, that's what I always seized on about that event. As we move from an era, you know, Robert Hughes, the art critic, said, I, I belong to the last generation that will walk into a museum and not ask when they see a masterpiece, how much does it cost? It felt to me like, Tyson and that fight was the real shift where he's making $21 million for a night's work at a time where Michael Jordan is making one-tenth of that for a year's labor. Um, Tyson represented something just kind of cartoonish in terms of his hype and being so young and the, how emphatically he was winning these fights. Can you take us to the first time you met Tyson and sort of... Let, let me just respond to one thing. You said one of the problems, one of the many problems with boxing, and it's a long list, is people keep talking about, well, how much money did uh, you know, Floyd Maker, Mayweather make for this fight? You know, how many buys did uh, Tyson Fury against Deontay Wilder to really do? Who cares? I mean... Do you know how much money LeBron James is making this year? Do you care? Do you know how many people watched the NBA championship finals last year? Do you care? I mean, that that's not what sports should be about. I mean, look, the guys make a lot of money. God bless them. But that shouldn't be the storyline. It's like people in boxing are saying, well, this guy's making so much money, so he must be good. No, how about this guy's fighting the best available competition and beating him again and again and again, so he must be good? You know, I mean, let Terrence Crawford and Errol Spence fight each other already, and then we'll find out which one of them is a truly great fighter. You know, we're just boxing has so many problems now. They have phony champions. Uh, the best aren't fighting the best. And you can't cover up by saying, well, he's making $10 million for a fight, so he must be great. No, he's making $10 million for a fight, so he's got to hustle. I mean, really. I mean, do you really care how much money Frank Sinatra made? Or do you just want to listen to his records and say this was the greatest popular singer of all time? I, I totally agree with you. I mean, that's sort of my point, is, is if our basic understanding of worth is how much you can get for something, then I think Andy Warhol kind of won, where he was the first one to say, how does one judge the quality of art? It's how much you can get for it. It seems like we wholesale bought into that as a culture, and I think it is. We're, we're seeing the effects of that all across society. Mike Tyson seems like boxing's biggest... Um, 
emblematic example of that where we really were talking about money all the time. We did to a degree with with Ali as well. I mean, Ali Foreman, there was a lot of talk about how much money they were making for that fight, but it's different with Tyson. Well, okay, first, the, the, the first time you really heard a lot of talk about money with Ali was when he fought Frazier the first time, and each fighter made the unheard of, unprecedented sum of $2.5 million. Uh, that was when you really heard money talked about in terms of that. Now, Gene Tunney made a million dollars for fighting Jack Dempsey the second time. Uh, actually, I think it was something like uh, $990,000, and he gave Tex Rickard a check for 10000 so he could get a million-dollar check out of it. But, uh, you know, again, it's it, it the focus should be on how good a guy or gal is, not how much money they're making. And uh, it, it, it's a problem, but that's how we look at everything and not everything. That's how a lot of people look at too many things in our society today. You know, it, it's about the money rather than the craft and the art. Also, can we can we get to what the rise of Tyson was like? I mean, with we've covered Ali, but I want to understand as a counterpoint what it was like to meet, meet Tyson for the first time, because you met him when he was very young. I met Tyson for the first time in October of 1983. He had just turned 17 years old. I had just started researching the Black Lights. Two of the first people I met were Jim Jacobs and Bill Caton. And they said to me, if you're going to write about boxing, you have to meet Customato. And they arranged me to go up and spend a weekend at the uh, house in Catskill, where Mike and several other young men were living and training with Cuss. So it was a very interesting experience. Uh, and uh, I came away with the feeling that, that, this is, you know, that this is somebody who has the potential to be a great fighter. Now, I was just starting in boxing then. I didn't really understand what I was watching, but I could see just the ferocity and the power with which he was hitting the heavy bag in the gym. It was like, you know, wow. And to me, one of the saddest things about Mike Tyson is that all the craziness in his life has obscured how good a fighter he was when he was young. Because when he was young, he was an awfully good fighter. He was better than good. He, he was, when he was young, he was a great fighter. I'm not saying he would have beaten anybody ever, but he would have been competitive against anybody ever. He was awesome in the ring, offensively, defensively. Uh, he just, he was great. And it's sad that, uh, you know, at a relatively young age, uh, he lost those skills. So that, you know, and, and you know, with, with a lot of fighters, you, at the end of the day, you know, you, you lose sight of what it was when they were old. You know, you go back to remembering the glory days. But, you know, the, the, the more video you have, you know, the more visual evidence there is of it, you know, the more that sticks in the mind. You know, I, I prefer to think of Ali before the exile from boxing, when he was fighting Cleveland Williams, Ernie Terrell, Zora Foley, Sonny Liston. To me, that's when Ali was at his peak. Uh, he was awfully good in Zaire, 
by the time he fought Joe Frazier in Manila, you saw a different side of him. You saw the courage, the heart, the never day say die spirit. But he wasn't Muhammad Ali anymore. And of course, one of the last thing and images people have of Ali is Ali against Larry Holmes, which is very sad. You know, when we think of Ray Leonard, we think of that extraordinary first fight against Tommy Hearns, which was just breathtaking. We think of Ray Leonard beating Marvin Hagler. We don't think of Ray Leonard losing to Terry Norris or Hector Camacho, nor should we. That wasn't Ray Leonard anymore. Do you think, I mean, how much do you think that Tyson's popularity, his earning power, going to prison for rape, at, you know, losing him at about the same age that we lost Ali, that was a parallel I remember at the time being brought up a lot, um, obviously under very different circumstances, um, but comes out even more marketable when he emerges from prison in 1995. I mean, how much do you think the, that boxing changed as a result of Tyson's um, prominence? And how much do you think it informed where boxing was headed with, I, I think, it, I mean, would you say that Floyd used a lot of Tyson in sort of his marketing and hype of not being terribly marketable um, when he was so successful with people paying to watch him win, but turning into this character that seemed to have some elements of Tyson to inform it. Boxing, more than most sports, has moved toward hype as a replacement for substance. In major sports and well-run sports, whether it's baseball, football, basketball, tennis, golf, at the end of the day, the best have to fight the best, have to play the best, I should say, compete against the best if they want to become champions. To win the Super Bowl, you have to qualify for the playoffs and then win games, game after game in the playoff tournament. The AFC champion can't say, well, I don't want to play the San Francisco 49ers. I want to play the New York Giants. They were only 2-14, and 14, but they're more marketable. You know, in, in the Masters golf tournament, you have, what is it, however, 126, whatever the number is, golfers who go out in the course, and the guy who records the best score wins. That's how well-run sports operate. That's not how boxing operates. It's one of the things that kills it. Uh, now, Mike Tyson, as I've said in his prime, was a great fighter. There was a lot of hype surrounding him. But initially, the hype wasn't about the craziness. Uh, that came later. That started, you know, with Robin Givens and crashing up his car and the interview with Barbara Walters and the other things. Initially, the hype about Mike Tyson was, God, have you seen this guy fight? I mean, he just is obliterating people. He is going out and he is destroying people. You know, 91 seconds, two minutes. And he's just, you know, getting in the ring to fight Mike Tyson is like a bunny rabbit getting in a uh, ring with a pit bull. Uh, that's what the initial attraction was to Tyson. And then the craziness took over because that's what American celebrity culture has become. Yeah. yeah. 
and also I wonder, I mean, I remember it was brought up, you were talking about how we look back and sort of revise uh, how we see these people sometimes with some of the great sportsmen or iconic figures. I feel as though Roy Jones Jr., more than most, was so exceptional in his prime and for, and for a long while but has been eclipsed by this historical revisionism that Floyd Mayweather was the greatest fighter of his generation, where I don't think there was ever anybody who made an argument that Jones at his peak wasn't better than Floyd Mayweather, and their primes were at relatively the same time. What Can you talk a little about covering Roy Jones Jr.? Yeah. I, and to, to me, Roy Jones, when Roy was Roy, was great. Uh, his Achilles heel was he didn't have the best chin in the world, but his skills were such that he didn't get hit on it very often. Uh, Roy had the, one of the problems that Muhammad had, you know, Muhammad relied on just extraordinary physical gifts, incredible speed and reflexes to cover up all the things he did in the ring. And he could get away with them because he was so fast. Roy was the same way. Roy was never a great technical fighter. Roy relied on incredible physical gifts to make him better than anybody else he was fighting. Now, when Muhammad lost that incredible speed and reflexes, he had his chin to bail him out because he had an incredible chin that was both very good and very bad, very good and that it helped him uh, George Foreman and Zaire, Joe Frazier twice. It gave us a, that whole long second ride. It's very bad and that some of the damage we saw later in his life came from the fact that he could take those punches again and again and again. Roy didn't have the chin. Roy, if you think about it, has suffered some very, very bad knockouts against Antonio Tarver, against Glenn Johnson. Uh, a couple of times, Roy was just knocked out cold and not for 10 seconds, you know. So, you know, but Roy at his best was a great, great fighter, you know, sort of like Sandy Koufax. Sandy Koufax didn't have the longevity that some of the great pitchers in baseball had. But uh, you want to take a five-year stretch, Sandy Koufax's record and skills were as good as anybody in the history of the game. Do you, do you think history, I mean, let's say 20 years down the road, do you think Floyd Mayweather's stock will increase or decrease? I, I, don't, I don't know because it depends on who writes the history. Mm -hmm. Floyd was a very, very good fighter. I'm not taking that away from him. He was a great matchmaker. Uh, I'm, I don't think anybody can give me the name of a great fighter in his prime who Floyd beat. You know, periodically I put these polls together where I will get a panel of, you know, 25 or 30 experts, you know, people who really know their stuff, you know, matchmakers like Bruce Trampler, you know, historians, you know, you know top of the line writers. And then I'll put together a mythical tournament. Like I'll take the welterweights and I'll say, okay, here are eight welterweights from modern times. You have Sugar Ray Robinson, Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Thomas Hearns, Floyd Mayweather, Emil Griffith, let's move Aaron Pryor up, 
uh, from 140 to welterweight. And there was one more I put on that list that escapes me at the time. And then I'll ask, okay, what would have happened if these guys in their prime had each fought each other? So you have Ray Leonard fighting the other seven guys in their prime. Floyd Mayweather fighting the other seven guys in their prime. So you're talking about 28 fights. If you have 30 people who are you know, making those predictions, 30 times 28 is what, about 840? Is that the right number? You have 840 predicted fight results to put in the database. And then you add up the wins and losses. If an elector says it's too close to call, each fighter gets half a point. And then you have your rankings. And when I did this, Ray Robinson finished first, Ray Leonard second, I think it was Tommy Hearns, we're talking about 147 pounds now, third, Roberto Duran for Manny Pacquiao, I'm sorry, was the other one who, uh, who I had on that list. Uh, and Floyd Mayweather wasn't in the top four. Uh, you know, to my way of thinking, if you take Manny Pacquiao at his prime and put him in the ring against Floyd Mayweather at his prime, I'm picking Pacquiao in that fight. There's a reason Mayweather waited to fight him until Manny was old. Now, these are all great fighters, but uh, you know, it, it, hype is different from reality. Unfortunately, we're in a society now where people don't know the difference. And you can go online and read anything to support anything. You can go online and read about these wonder drugs. They're going to cure the coronavirus, except if you take them, they'll kill you. <laughs> well, as, as somebody who attended both the fights of the century in the 20th and the 21st, which did you prefer of the two? Well, if you're if you're calling Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather, I'm sorry, it wasn't. Never was that the fight. It wasn't even the fight of the decade. I'm sorry. Just because a fight, you know, you know, grosses a lot of pay-per-view buys, engenders a lot of pay-per-view buys, doesn't mean going in it wasn't the fight of the century. While it was going on, it was a rancid, boring fight. It, it probably did as much to hurt boxing is any fight we've had because what it did was it introduced boxing to a new audience. You had all these people who hadn't watched a fight before, who, who bought the pay-per-view, who saw a vile undercard, just two terribly boring mismatches, then a boring main event, who probably said to themselves, this is the best that boxing has to offer. I'm not watching it anymore. So no, don't tell me that was the fight of a century. And if you want to look at the previous century, there are three fights, to my way of thinking, that were arguably the fight of the century in terms of social importance, which is what we're really looking at. You had Jack Johnson and James Jeffries, which was enormously important because it destroyed one of the pillars of white supremacy, which was the idea that the, the white man was somehow physically superior to the black. Then you had the second fight between Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling, and after that, Ali Frazier won. Now, you, in terms of social importance, those were the three. Uh, you could also say that if you're just looking at, well, let's look at great fights, Ali Frazier three in Manila, even though neither guy was at his peak, was probably greater as a fight 
than any of the other Ali Frazier fights. Leonard Hearns won an incredible fight, a great fight. Uh, you know, great fights between great fighters with great action are few and far between, but that's why we treasure them so much. And at the end of the day, that's what makes boxing legends. You know, when we think about Jack Dempsey and Gene Tunney, we think about their fighting each other. When we think about Joe Lewis, we think about his getting in the ring after being knocked out by Max Schmeling and then stopping Schmeling in the first round. It, it's the great fights between great fighters. The same way when we look at football games, we look at great Super Bowls and you have two very good teams to start. These are the two teams that made it to the Super Bowl. So you know they're good. We're not talking about, oh, Marcus Maidana made it tough for Floyd Mayweather. So what? So what? Come on. I, d I just thought it was funny. I mean, to, to start off, I mean, I had a fight with a parking meter on May 2nd, 2015, that I think was far more compelling than Mayweather Pacquiao. I wouldn't entirely consider it the fight of the 21st century, but I think it was more compelling than the pre-build Pacquiao Mayweather fight of the century. Floyd Mayweather at his peak was a very good fighter. Floyd Mayweather at his peak would have been competitive with any welterweight ever, but I don't think he would have beaten some of them. I think Tommy Hearns knocks Floyd Mayweather into third, the third row. You know, Floyd gets in the ring with Roberto Duran and uh, tries some of this, you know, elbows and shoulders and going low and, and, and other borderline tactics that Floyd's so good at. I mean, can you imagine Roberto Duran's eyes lighting up and his saying whatever the Spanish is? Oh, you want to fight dirty? You know, okay. You know, I mean... Uh, Again, you know, we're talking about great fighters. You know, would Floyd have been competitive with Roberto Duran, with Tommy Hearns, with Ray Leonard, with uh, Sugar Ray Robinson, you know, Manny Pacquiao? Yes, because you know he belongs in their league. But to my way of thinking, he's not in first place. Yeah, it's interesting you went to Tommy Hearns because I remember talking to Roy Jones Jr. Uh, yeah. in Pensacola when I asked him about some of the all-time greats if if he fought them. It was Hearns was the only one where he said, I don't like that fight. I don't like that matchup for me. <laughs> yeah, well, all you have to do is look at what happened when Tommy Hearns got in the ring with Roberto Duran, and you'd know why you know, Roy might have thought twice about that. Sure. Well, and interestingly, Roy, I don't know if you and I ever talked about this, but I asked Roy in a mythical matchup with Mayweather how he thought he would do. And he just said, didn't I already do that? Like with James Tony, and how did that go? And I think Tony was kind of better than Mayweather in many respects. And I thought it was inter interesting, just it was such an immediate reaction, maybe a little defensive to it, but uh, Roy's a pretty good student of the game, and he didn't really think he would have too much trouble with Floyd if they were matched appropriately. Yeah, now, of course, there's, there's that size differential because sure. Roy never fought below 54, and 54 certainly wasn't Floyd's best weight. True. Well, I'll, 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 I'll give Roy a pass on uh, not <laughs> fighting 
I'll give Floyd a pass on not fighting Roy in a mythical tournament. Uh, that would <laughs> off a little too much to chew. Well, last question. Um, with the likes of Don King, Bob Arum, you know, a lot of a lot of changes seem to be happening in boxing. I mean, I felt it very strongly with Floyd fighting a Conor McGregor and that becoming the second biggest sort of earnings for boxing. Where does boxing go next? What's the what's the best and the worst possibilities of where boxing is headed in the next decade or two from your point of view as a student of the game? Boxing has problems. And to me, the biggest problems are first, it has an economic model that cuts its signature events off from the greatest number of people. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous, this pay-per-view model where, I mean, how popular would Tiger Woods have become if you had to pay $79.95 to watch him in the Masters? Uh, and then you add on to this ridiculous paper paywall by, you know, starting your, you know, biggest fights well after midnight on the East Coast? I mean, do, does the World Series start after midnight on the East Coast? Does the Super Bowl start after midnight on the East Coast? I mean, that's just nuts. People can't see boxing signature events. And second, the best don't fight the best. You don't have real champions. And, you know, it's, 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 to me, it's, it's stupid. It's just that the sport is killing itself. You have Super champions, world champions, silver champions, interim champions, champions emeritus, diamond champions, franchise champions. You know, how about real champions? You know, in virtually every sport, the point of the season is to crown a champion. People get real excited about baseball, football, basketball, hockey when the playoffs begin. In individual sports, you know the Wimbledon champion has earned it. You know that uh, the Masters or, or British Open champion has earned it. And in boxing, it's hard to know who the real champions are. There are too few of them. Because and and you know the fighters, you know, might say, "Okay, I like this because uh, I'm getting a lot of money, and I have a belt, and I don't have to fight that real tough guy over there to be a champion." But they're the ones who are being cheated the most because they're the ones who are being denied the opportunity to prove their greatness. Let the best fight the best, but it's not going to happen, and that's why for the foreseeable future, boxing's going to remain a niche sport, which is too bad, because boxing at its best is the greatest sport of all. Mr. Hauser, this was really fun. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Always fun to talk to you. Likewise. Talk to you soon, Tom. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.